if we're going to be $200 billion in debt there and the federal government has said they're going to give trillions to this infrastructure, we just need to make it more accurate and make it where it's fair. You know, if this guy's got a truck and he does 20,000 miles a month and this guy has a truck and does 1,000 miles a month, well, that guy doing that many more miles, he's tearing up that road. He's utilizing our infrastructure more. And if we don't go to something different, we'll be $2 trillion in debt for infrastructure, not $200 billion. And so we have to do something here. Welcome to another edition of Trucking with Pro Miles featuring Tony Stroncheck. Tony, today we talk with two of our favorite people in the industry from the International Fuel Tax Association, Carmen and Rick. IFTA, as we all know, is an Arizona not-for-profit corporation formed to manage and administer the wonderful world of International Fuel Tax Agreement. And it was an enlightening discussion, was it not, Tony? It sure was, Stephen. We learned a lot, and I'm so excited about all the future conversations and the other people we're going to bring in to talk to Rick and Carmen, because a lot of people have a lot of questions. Let's take a listen to the interview. Welcome, Carmen. Welcome, Rick, to the Trucking with Pro Miles podcast. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you both. Thank you. An honor to be here. Thank you, Stephen. You know, as I begin researching more and more podcasts, Megan and I, one thing I've found is the more likely a podcast is to have some reference to the word sex or sexy in it, you're more likely to get a few more hits. So I'm going to take a roundabout way and uh, introduce a quote here um, and try to incorporate the word sex just to just to raise our uh, our viewer <laughs> limit here. And that is this. The funding of transportation infrastructure is not sexy. I think we all agree on that. You'll rarely see it as a topic of a presidential debate, rarely if ever see it appear in a list of top voter concerns. Yet, going all the way back to the Roman Empire, there is arguably not a greater issue than this that affects a society, a country's ability to thrive, that is, than that of the transportation infrastructure. And I think our guests today will, will more than agree to that. So let's get right to our guests. Uh, Carmen, please introduce yourself to our audience and tell us about your past and present, please. Sure, thank you, Stephen. Uh, my name is Carmen Martirana, long Italian name. I've been the executive director for, I think almost four years for IFTA Incorporated, International Fuel Tax Association. Uh, in a prior life, I worked for New York State Tax as a tax administrator, managed a bunch of different corp, uh, corporate auditors that did audits for corporations, uh, fuel use tax, sales tax, all of that. I did that for 30 years. Uh, also taught at a college for 26 years while working for New York State Tax. Uh, I have a few different degrees, a degree in accounting. Uh, master's in tax and an MBA, and also a degree in computer science, although I probably could not code anything now because I never really stayed with it. So uh, very happy to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. It's nice that we can have this opportunity to kind of educate and let people know what's going on. So thank you, Stephen. 
And Carmen, we try to roll out the red carpet for our guests and demonstrate to you that we've done our research. So I've got a special quote for both of you tied into our topic somewhat today. First one has to do with navigation and mapping, and this one's for you, Carmen. You might not find it on an official map, but rest assured, Bill's country is a real place. <laughs> oh, amen to that. Yes, thank you. Yeah, Bill's country is. And by the way, it's a traveling country because uh, Bill's fans are like no other fans, and they go to every game. They, tr- if you, I can't tell you how many games I've attended with my son out of state. And there's always more Bills fans than there is local fans. You're right. Thank you for that. Yes. And I won't tell you that I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan and we won't talk about <laughs> That's the That's okay. 90s. I promise. <laughs> I promise we'll stay friends. Rick LaRose, our friend, introduce yourself, please. Well, good afternoon, Stephen and Tony. Uh, I'm Rick LaRose. I am the Director of Administrative Services for IFTA Incorporated. And before that, uh, I spent 35 years as a tax administrator in the audit division of the Connecticut Department of Revenue Services. Um, I can assure you that this is indeed uh, a big happy family, and I'll put that word in caps uh, at IFTA Inc. And we're excited to be here. Um, when I retired from government service back in 2017, uh, I was honored to actually join the ProMiles team as uh, the director of audit. And as this podcast will reveal uh, somewhat, um, the calling came to me from IFTA Inc. uh, to get involved in something that uh, I've been dealing with my pretty much my entire professional life. And that is uh, motor carrier taxation and making sure that the highways and byways of our country um, are assembled properly so that Truckers can deliver goods and services um, timely, efficiently, and safely to folks like all of us that are not just on the podcast, but watching the podcast. So it's a pleasure to be here. My quote for you, Rick LaRose, just to show you our crack research staff was on the ball (laughs) with Rick LaRose, is a quote from your favorite movie. It's a mad, mad, mad world. Buddy Hackett. There's no rush. We just want to get there in a hurry. Does that not sum up the transportation industry? It certainly does, Stephen. And and as we'll find out over the next several minutes, um, all of us are in a bit of a hurry because there is a sense of urgency and really a call to duty. Two more quick quotes uh, to introduce our program today. The first one involving IFTA, and that is this. Chris Polk, longtime driver, Pretty famous podcaster, LinkedIn presence, social media presence, and now he works for a carrier, had this to say about IFTA in a recent podcast. One of the only things done on the planet that the government's done that they didn't screw up that has actually worked and makes sense. And he was speaking to if about IFTA. Carmen, that's got to make your heart warm. It does. And uh, that is such a true comment, if, you know, and I'm sure we'll talk about it as we go along. But if you think about life before IFTA and how much it improved, not only for industry, but jurisdictions, too. I mean, you know, I think initially jurisdictions had a reluctance to join this cooperative agreement because it was so new, so unique. 
um, but they also see the huge benefits in, in being part of this cooperative agreement. So uh, that's a great comment, a great quote. I, I think that's very true if they did get it right. And, you know, we keep perfecting it too. It takes, you know, over 30 years, we keep perfecting that agreement, but it definitely works having that uniform approach and having the cooperative agreement. So I like that. I like that comment a lot. I thought you might. And the final quote <laughs> that will dovetail into our later discussion and perhaps of even greater interest to the audience has to do with transportation funding, how it's funded now and perhaps how it will be funded in the future. And the quote is from Deloitte, a pretty famous worldwide consulting firm. And they said, today, traditional funding models still are based largely on taxes levied per gallon on fossil fuels. That reads a brief uh, summary by Deloitte. They go on to say, but they're being undermined steadily by increasing fuel efficiency and the growing popularity of EVs. And why... And, and, and that's why most, if not all, U.S. state and federal transportation jurisdictions are considering funding systems based on miles driven. Rick, we're going to get into that topic, obviously, a little, a little bit later after we talk about some current IFTA issues. But does that quote from Deloitte more or less summarize the state of the state right now with funding? It, it does. And, and truthfully, Stephen, you know, Everything comes back to the Highway Trust Fund. And this has been a very delicate balance, not just for the trucking industry, but for society in general. I mean, we, we all you know, want to take good care of the environment. So there have been initiatives that have been going on for three or four decades now to make vehicles more efficient. You know, I talk about this all the time, Stephen, about you know, the imposition of a 4.0 MPG um, within IFTA. And it, its genesis, now I'm kind of showing my age, its genesis was back in the day, that's what a large commercial motor vehicle, a tractor trailer, if you will, actually got for a miles per gallon factor. If you fast forward 40 years, four decades, that 4.0 MPG is really punitive. Well, why did I even illustrate that? I illustrated it because the efficiency of the large commercial motor vehicles, never mind the passenger vehicles we use every day, have become so much more efficient. We all like that, right? But there's a downside to it. And the downside is more efficient vehicles means less, fewer gallons being purchased, which translates to fewer tax dollars being collected that are used to fund the nation's infrastructure. So, we have been living for many decades now with an ever declining um, balance in the highway trust fund. Uh, 20 years ago, I was at a, at a Federation of Tax Administrators meeting where one of the big topics, 20 years ago, mind you, one of the big topics was, what are we gonna do when the money runs out? Well, here we are. I was at a meeting in September, a United States Senator looked at me and said, the Highway Trust Fund will be $200 billion in the red, wait for it, by 2025. That's only two years away, my friends. So your quote is very timely, and we're going to certainly talk about all of these issues and what the impacts are, not just for the trucking industry, but for our entire society over the next several minutes. 
If I could just add to it too, real quick. So uh, what Rick said is very true. Um, and, you know, states up to this point have been supplemented by the federal government. So you haven't seen it and you haven't seen this reaction and this, you know, sense of urgency because the federal government keeps supplementing them. But all of that comes from the general fund and they can't continue to do that. You, you already know that we, we have huge deficits. And so it is going to stop that supplemental funding to the jurisdiction level. And so when Rick says 200 billion on the federal side, that is just on the federal side. But when you look at each state, how much they've been losing and that gap between the revenue that comes in for fuel use tax and the cost to maintain the infrastructure, uh, that gap gets huge for, for jurisdictions too. So it is a, a huge issue. Well said. Tony, before we uh, get to that very sensitive issue of fossil fuel and funding and potential for mileage fees one day, I know, Tony, you're about my age. You remember back in the days, was your family like mine, where we kids would ride in the back of the station wagon on vacation and oftentimes with no seatbelt, I'm, I'm sorry to admit. And we'd look at those truckers as they were approaching, uh, trying to get them to you know, honk their air horns and that type of thing. And do you remember like me, Tony, the dozens and dozens of bright license plates on those trucks? And I guess what I'm leading you up to is, what, what do you remember back in those days about what I call pre-IFTA days in terms of the trucks having all the different license plates and the reasoning for it. What I remember back then is we had the station wagons, but we also had cars where there were five of us. So we would, one of us would be laying in the back window area. So uh, above the speakers and all that, cause you know, we all wanted to sleep or we're going on a trip. Uh, so I definitely remember that. And I, and I do remember uh, even here, not even a month ago, where my niece was in the truck with us. And, uh, and I said, Hey, you know, you can get the other guy to blow a horn. How do you do that? What do you mean? So we taught her start pulling this down and all that. And then the truckers will wave at her and go in. But Stephen, I remember those days. Well, when I first got into transportation back in 89 and you see trucks and you'll see that, well, where's this truck from? Normally you look at the front of a license plate and say, Oh, this guy's from Texas. But when you look and there's 10 different license plates on the front of that truck, but where is this guy from? You really don't know. Before IFT and IRP, it was very cumbersome. We would file an application each quarter, sometimes monthly, with each and every jurisdiction to file taxes. Well, it was a pain in the rear. And what really hurt the industry, mostly the truckers, is you had to make sure your taxes was paid at the end of the month after the quarter ends. However, for the other states that owed you tax money back, they could take sometimes four or six quarters before they sent your money back. And this really hurt the industry and caused money to be a tighter thing back then when it came to, I'm paying a lot of states, a lot of if to tax I own, but a lot of these states owe me money back and I have to wait for my money, but they want theirs a month later. You know, it was not quite fair. And I think if to came in at the perfect time and IRP came in at the perfect time going, how can we centralize this to our base state? How can we just file the information with one state, let that state upload the data to IFTA, and then let IFTA distribute the funds or collect the funds from the jurisdictions that owe a refund back? Made it so much nicer. And instead of filing, you know, 58 different reports every month or every quarter, you know, now you're just filing, you know, one to four or five reports on a quarterly basis, depending on what state you travel for a mile tax. So, Carmen, you know that story well, Tony just told, and our memories of the old license plates. Take us back yeah. in time and as you, we transition from those days to the IFTA days. 
Yeah, great question. So uh, I think Tony said it right. I mean, we all remember, I remember the days before IFTA. Uh, and so just like you, Tony said, I mean, if you were an industry carrier, what a logistic nightmare, right? Every state that you traveled through, you had to get separate credentials, have all those decals on your your you know, your truck, you had to file 58 different returns. More importantly, you had to deal with 58 different statutes, 58 different set of rules. Uh, and as Tony said, you had to wait for your money for one jurisdiction while paying the others. It just really was an unfair system. And so IFTA started out with uh, really a cooperative agreement between four different jurisdictions. In the very early years, it wasn't a national program. It wasn't mandated by the federal government. Started with these four jurisdictions that said, you know what, there's some benefit to this, not only to industry, but also to jurisdictions, right? The cost of administration, when you have to collect returns from somebody located in Texas and your California, um, the cost of administration is huge. And so these four jurisdictions got together, kind of created the the genesis of what became the IFTA agreement. Uh, and that is really what mandated it. So obviously you had a lot of lobbyists on the industry side that went to the federal government and said, hey, this doesn't work. We are so regulated. We need some relief from this. We need some solution. Uh, so it went through Congress and Senate and the so-called Ice-T legislation uh, back in 1991 created a mandate. And that mandate was that any one of the 48 contiguous states, if they wanted to be able to have the right to charge fuel use tax on interstate commerce and receive federal grant funds for highways, then they had to be in compliance with the IFTA agreement. It wasn't that they had to join, but they had to be in compliance with the IFTA agreement. And so, of course, if you're a jurisdiction and, and you need to be in compliance with this IFTA agreement, you're going to join IFTA, right, because you want a voice in it. You want to say in what the changes occur in the IFTA agreement. And so that is kind of the genesis. That's what happened. And so it became a mandate. Uh, you know, as we'll talk about, there were some states, in particular some of the eastern states, that really had a reluctance to joining IFTA. They don't like to be mandated to do anything. Uh, New York was one of them, where I came from. Um, but since then, they they saw the benefits. And, you know, if you think about what IFTA is now and you are in the state of New York, you now have 57 other jurisdictions doing audits on your behalf, where in the past you had to send an auditor to, to travel to these other jurisdictions and do audit. It wasn't very cost efficient, uh, just like it wasn't for industry. So the 58 member jurisdictions that are part of the IFTA agreement now understand the benefits to it and specifically you know, the, the reduction in the administrative costs for it. So they are all on board. And I don't think jurisdictions as well as industry, nobody wants to go back to those days. So real quick, I know Tony was talking about it. And, you know, this is this is the issue we're faced with now. It's very clear that the revenue coming in from fuel use tax is not enough to sustain the infrastructure as is. Jurisdictions are reluctant to increase the tax rate. Why? For a few different reasons. It doesn't go over well with their constituents, number one. And number two, it, it doesn't become equal then because a, a you know high efficiency car is not supporting the infrastructure the same way that a, a non-efficient car is. And it just, you know, it's not very equal. So, um, so what are they going to do? 
so what you're seeing now are jurisdictions like Connecticut, for example, that are going to supplement it. And that's what we're trying to avoid, right? Connecticut came up with a, a separate mileage-based tax. There are a few other jurisdictions that have it, New York, Kentucky. And if we don't do something now, if we're not proactive now in trying to maintain this uniform approach, that's exactly what you're going to see. Jurisdictions, once that money stops coming in from the federal government, will have to supplement it some way. And so you're going to see more and more proliferation of some type of supplemental mileage tax. And we don't want that to happen. So Rick and I are working hard to make sure that doesn't happen. I got a question, and and maybe this even be better for you, Rick. You came from Connecticut, okay? I know over the last, you know, six months, everybody was confused about how in the world is going to, Connecticut going to do this? How are they going to maintain this? And the more we dug into it, Rick, the more confusing it got. I mean, they've got like 20 different class tables every 2,000 miles. And now they're saying they want to know that on each and every trip. I mean, this could really make the carriers and owner operators have to jump through so many more. This is actually more difficult than prior IFTA, in my opinion. Well, you know, Tony, you're, you're raising a good point. And, and Connecticut, um, Connecticut decided to, to as Carmen said, uh, supplement the collections of fuel taxes um, by imposing a mileage tax on the motor carrier industry. And uh, it's, it's something nobody wanted. Um, the industry tried to lobby against it. The genesis of it, truthfully, was um, the current governor in Connecticut wanting to implement tolls, which didn't get much in the way of support uh, because it was a broad-based tolling system that would have included the general population. As a fallback, they decided to implement a mileage tax imposed on motor carriers. And there are some exemptions that are built into it. And you're right, Tony, it is a very difficult law to understand. From a carrier's perspective, you are correct. It is a nightmare. But it's also a nightmare for the Department of Revenue Services. How so? Well, in IFTA world, as you know, and, and Carmen will speak to this in, in greater detail, um, it's, it's the base jurisdiction concept. So you're really only responsible directly for the motor carriers that are based within your state or province. The other 57 member jurisdictions kind of do your bidding. So they are, they are a de facto agent for your state to uh, administer, collect, and enforce your tax. Um, if there was revolutionary in that area, this is a giant step backwards. Why? Mm -hmm. Because Connecticut now has to go out and identify arguably 50,000 motor carriers that are across the United States and Canada to impose this single state mileage tax. It is nearly unenforceable. IFTA, and, and we'll flesh this out as we go through this podcast, IFTA is clearly the instrument that has, Carmen, am I right? Four decades worth of validated proof that it works on any number of levels for the industry and with no disrespect to the industry, more importantly, to the government itself. It works. We do not want to see nor does the industry, really, nor does the general public want to see a proliferation of single state mileage taxes 
for the simple reason we know what happened when when there was a spike in the price of diesel for example truckers did not absorb 100% of that cost it got passed on to the consumer when governments impose additional taxes and don't subscribe to something that is very uniform and very fair like the the imposition of tax through an instrument like IFTA, um, that cost is going to get passed down to John Q. Public. And that's not something anybody wants. So you are correct. It is a very difficult law to manage for the carrier, for the service provider, but it's equally difficult to administer for the government. And as Carmen said, we're doing everything we can to see that we don't lose 40 years worth of positive movement in the administration of fair taxation on behalf of not just a motor carrier, but as we're going to find out, the general population as well. It's funny, real quick, Rick and I were talking about this, you know, before the days of IFTA, we used to audit some of the same carriers. And so I'd walk in a carrier and they go, man, I'm so glad you're here. That tyrant from Connecticut, he was brutal. (laughs) And I think Rick got the same the same kind of comment from uh, when he would follow me in an audit, but you know, it just goes to show you how how difficult it was for carriers. They would be audited by everybody, and uh, yeah, it was a. Well, we don't want to go back to those days, Carmen. That's a great point. You know, I would I would follow Carmen into a place, and they'd say, "Well, you know, we just had to pay New York X number of dollars. Why are you, you know, trying to get your piece of the pie too? I really don't care what you did with New York. I'm here for Connecticut, right? And yep. and that played out dozens and dozens of times, times X number of jurisdictions that imposed a motor, a traditional motor carrier road tax. So, well, let me, let me ask you this guys, you know, so what I remember is I was 19 years old in 89. Okay. When I got involved with transportation and at that point, it was so difficult to know what states and what the regulations were how to file your returns, how to make sure you get your money back. How do you, you know, how many audits are you going to actually have to go through? Because trust me, you know, if one state's in there auditing you for a problem and they have a conversation with another auditor, that other auditor may come in. And on top of that, some states join both IFT and IRP will perform one audit. And so sometimes they're in for a completely different reason. You know, if it's an IFT audit, they're coming in because maybe there's falsified fuel. You're claiming way too much fuel that they can't justify that you've been getting your MPG changed. On the IRP side, it was, where did your miles run? Where were your trucks at? And IRP registration was different than IFTA registration on size and weights. So it was very cumbersome. But I can imagine, Rick, that if you and Carmen wasn't leading this initiative, I think we would get lost so fast. Because I've watched so many auditors and so many administrators come into IFTA and IRP and then leave IFTA and IRP 10 years later, they retire, you know? Well, problem with that is, is these new folks coming in, the younger classes, they didn't go through the trials and tribulations that the two of you had to go through back in the day. And so to me, I think it's imperative that we keep people that have the knowledge of these changes in the lead, because if we don't, we're going to go 50 miles backwards. And we're going to start over again filing stupid returns with every jurisdiction, waiting for money to come back, and more businesses will fail because of cash flow. All because we allow new people to come in going, heck, this is government, this is technology, we can do anything. You really can't. 
And the only way to prove this to these people is to make them go back and relive those 40 years. And Rick, I know that you've had your fingerprints all over the regulations. So those rules that these states go by, the rules the carriers have to go by, you guys played played a very major role in structuring these. And it wasn't easy. I remember a lot of the initial IFTA meetings that I would attend and dude, you would have one state on one side of the table, another state on the other. And I honestly thought they were going to throw punches. They were that mad and angry with each other over wording, over what should this statement really be? What does this really mean? And for some states, they didn't get it because the new people they brought in didn't understand the history. Well, back in the day, Tony, um, you know, if you put 50 jurisdictions in a room, we couldn't decide on what we wanted for lunch, never mind shaping <laughs> the future of tax policy. Mm-hmm. And Carmen can, can attest to that because we were in those same rooms. Um, yeah. You know, IFTA changed all of that. And, and now you fast forward 40 years, you put the 58 members, in, and I know Carmen's going to speak to some of the changes that have, have happened as recently as a few months ago. You put those 58 jurisdictions in a room today, Mm-hmm. And they not only can decide on lunch, but they can shape tax policy for the future and do it more efficiently, more timely, and more appropriately than, quite frankly, arguably, any other tax type does. Yeah. So it's, it's a testimony to what's happened over those 40 years. And, and Tony really did bring up a, a very important point, and this is something we do convey to jurisdictions, as well as my own internal organization, IFTA. Um, we are starting to lose those people, right? Those people that have been around for 34 years are retiring from their jurisdiction. And what we try to convey to them is you need some kind of mentor program. You need to get the people that are under you younger, that are going to be around a while to come to these meetings, to Mm -hmm. get a sense of the history, to look back at some of the records we have. And so it's a great point, Tony. We, We do bring it up. I can't imagine anything more important than at least having some type of mentor program within those jurisdictions as well as within some of the, you know, the other independent industry organizations too. You need that. Uh, it's going to take some time to train these people and give them a sense of the history and how we got to where we are. So great point. So if over the last 40 years, IFTA has been the, the, the conduit or the pipeline between the government and the industry to say, we need to collect data. We need to make sure how you're main, managing this data. How are you going to perform in an audit? Because I can remember back then, I mean, half the time we got shoe boxes of receipts in for a driver. There was no trip record. There was nowhere telling you where he started, where he ended. So you call him up and say, look, this is a problem. We can't file this. We need more data, you know. And then I've watched back in the 90s, the auditors come in. You know, uh, some states like the state of Oregon used paper reports and paper maps to do their audits for so many years before they adopted our package. And I'll tell you, you know, if we have to go back and do that kind of stuff again, um, we're going to realize that the best thing that ever happened to our industry was the ELD, you know, not just for safety, but for the collection of that data. And I know for a fact that all these years that we've been supporting the IFT and IRP community with our mileage and routing system to help perform these audits, was to help them understand how to collect these shoe boxes and rebuild these things. But with the technology out there today with the ELD providers, you know, some of them are giving us every minute or every 30 seconds, they're giving us a dot and says, this is where you're at on this planet. 
And by the way, I'm grabbing your odometer reading from the J bus. And I know how much fuel the J bus has pushed through and actually fueled the truck. So it can do a lot of analytics and a lot better than a driver. Could you imagine I'm driving an 80,000 pound truck trailer full of loads. And what am I doing? I'm going down the road and I'm supposed to know when I hit that border and write down my odometer, write down the mileage right. number. Right. No, they don't do this. What do they do? They wait until they stop 12 hours later, 10 hours later, and they're going to do a rest. And they then fill out that log book. Well, the ELD simplified this in reality because it gave you a good dot, gave you a good history. And if we were to take the years that it took IFTA to understand, well, how do I audit all that GPS data? You know, I add up paper trip sheets and stuff. I don't have to do this within a system. And it took us years to educate the auditors, to give them the technology they need, which they have now to click on a Excel spreadsheet with all this data, drag it on a map and have it plotted out where before every auditor had to do this by hand, type in that lat long for each one of those positions, or it's two miles south of this city. And they would have to estimate what those miles are. It was so hard on those auditors. But I saw back in around, I say it was around 2015, 2016, is when we finally attended a conference with IFTA there in Houston. We brought a Snyder truck in, okay, with the devices in it and inv involved all the IFTA people and our people there at that meeting came out, physically got in the truck, touched the device, saw what the device did, understood that it's not easy for that driver to hack into this thing and manipulate this data. And so to me, the future of knowing what vehicle traveled in what state, even down to what city and county, because hell, today you got counties that charge a tax for fuel. They have a city that charges a tax. You've got the state charge tax. You got a federal charge tax. So I can't imagine if we had to take a step back at every state now, added on top of that fuel that you burn a tax. Now they're going to say, give me every mile you run. The only way this could be done is the same way IFTA's been doing it all these years. Yeah. The foundation that IFTA gave to say how we're going to go from paper to electronics, we, when I say we, I mean every one of us lived a lot of nights, you know, sleepless, having to get up the next morning to change returns up, split tax rates happen, uh, these tax holidays are coming. How do we manipulate this to help the carrier and the hundreds of service bureaus that use our technology? How do we help them know how to file their thousand tax returns for their customers. This was so hard. So I am nervous that if we don't speak up today and tell the industry to learn from our history, don't relive it, but don't do it again. Don't go back and do the same thing that took 20 years to finally get those people to understand that this centralized IFTA community is the key. We're doing this as it is because states cannot wait a year to get their taxes. The states can't even wait now to get their taxes months down the road. They need that money. And when that does get cut off, what are they going to do, guys? How are they going to support the industry? Carmen? So, man, uh, Tony, you, you brought up so many good points. I want to I want to start with audits, for example, because, you know, when we start to talk about the future, what it might look like, technology is definitely going to drive that future. But you're right. Audits, I always tell this story. You know, when I started 30 some years ago as an auditor, that's all there was, was paper records. And I'll never forget this audit. I know I've told it before. Uh, it, this audit was done at somebody's house. Uh, and this, you know, 
this lady came to the door. I rang the doorbell. She came to the door. She had a you know cigarette hanging out of her mouth. She was in a bathrobe. Kids running around. Brought up these dusty old paper boxes. You know boxes filled with dusty old paper mm-hmm. from the basement to the kitchen table. I sat at the kitchen table. Did the audit. The dog was humping my leg under the table. The kids were walking around with peanut butter sandwiches, smothering my, you know, my work papers. Um, and yeah, no, we, we can never go back to that. I mean, it was so inefficient uh, that the resources and the time and money it costs to do that type of audit, we can never go back. So technology has taken us from there to simple things like having a laptop and, and the programs that ProMiles created, right, for jurisdictions and carriers to be able to, to route and, and show that. And, and so when we talk about what the future might look like, whether that's a replacement for fuel use tax or some type of you know, tax per mile, technology is going to drive that. And, you know, all these study groups that I go to, all these different groups that I go to when they talk about passenger vehicles, for example, and how are we going to capture that information? If we're going to start charging passenger vehicles a pay per mile because we're going to take the taxes out of the pump, how do we get that information? And it all comes back to technology. And that is what what's going to drive it, whether it's technology directly from the OEM or some new type of technology. We can't do without it. And that is exactly what is going to drive our future. Well, I'll tell you, I know that I know, Rick, when you started working for ProMiles and we started managing, you know, I think today we have 60 something ELD partners that we process data for, you know, not all of these folks are capturing the data, you know, from the J bus like they properly should. Uh, But I will tell you, when you take two dots on a map, you know what the odometer was at this dot, the odometer at the second dot. Then you know what the air distance is. You can do some algorithms to make sure the data is good because you've seen in many audits where the odometer wasn't right or they didn't have an odometer the whole time. And so there's no checks and balances there. And I think what we've got to do today is learn from the things we had to learn over the last 40 years to make sure that these audits are as accurate as possible and that they're easy to audit. And the only way to do that is with technology. There's no way that we can go. And if you're talking the consumer as well to do a mile tax, could you imagine going to, you know, my mom or my mother-in-law and go, hey, guys, you got to start handwriting out where you go and what you do. You know, these folks would look at you and laugh like, I don't know any of this. How am I supposed to do all this? We can't go to the consumer world and say, you've got to do a lot more work now to help us tax you. You know, now you're looking at, you know, the falsifying of everything. It's going to be bad. And the only way to make this work is to learn from what we've done and learn from what we're doing today. We didn't have to use ELD data for fuel tax. There's no law out there today that says you must use your ELD data to pay your fuel tax. Nothing. But what did the industry do? They knew it was coming. And they're going, I'm spending all this money on a device to track my hours and where I drive. It's got all this data sitting in it. If I could take that data and send it to somebody to process for me, to connect those dots, to come up with those miles, then it simplifies that process and it gets your ROI on that device back even faster. And now in the U.S., it's mandated. Canada, the mandate's coming. And so when that happens, we're going to see Canada as well start freaking out like we did in the U.S. So the benefit is so many people have embraced ELD devices in the trucking industry. So we have the data, we have access to all that information we need to make this pretty simple, not only for the carrier, but also for the auditor to perform that audit 
to make sure where's the gaps. You had a truck stopped in Florida. It started up again in Alaska. How did you move that truck? How did it get from point A to point B? That's the kind of stuff that you can go look at versus give me every trip that this truck did. And let's say it takes three trips a day. It has a short little radius it does, but it crosses a state. Could you imagine having to go back to three paper trip sheets again? No. I mean, this is not the wave of the future. What do you think, Rick? Real quick on that before Rick adds in. I know Rick will have a lot. Uh, I, I just want to bring this point up because you, you talked about ELDs. And this is this is brought up by every study group. Can we use ELDs? Can we, you know... Uh, can we get that information? Can we mandate that? And I think you already know this, that the when the federal government passed the law that mandated the use of ELDs, one of the things in that law right now is they cannot be used. It can't be mandated to be used for anything else other right. than keeping track of a driver's time. That may change if, you know, some of these study groups go to the federal government and say we need that change to make it mandated for record keeping requirements. But I just want to add that. Rick, go ahead. You know, you know, Tony, I, I often think about where we were 40 years ago. And uh, Carmen spoke to this earlier about, you know, just the, the level of experience that's out there, you know, uh, within our community. This is really no different than what we went through back in the 1980s and throughout the 90s as the federal mandate under Ice-T started to take shape. We had all of these discussions and debates about record keeping and, you know, what data elements did you have to have and, you know, how frequently did you have to keep them and, you know, what constituted complete records. We've, that's been an ongoing debate for 40 years. This is really no different. It's just an electronic version of what we all went through back in the day. And that's why, you know, one of the things that, that is crucial to moving forward is recognizing that number one, technology is here. It's here to stay. We're going to rely on it. Carmen is a hundred percent correct. It's not going away. In fact, it's going to be critical to moving forward into this brave new world. Second, we don't really need to recreate the wheel because we've seen this movie before. This is just the sequel to it. We just have to modify some of our rules and some of our business processes to embrace the new ways of doing things because the goal is still the same. The goal is to collect tax efficiently, properly, and accurately and fairly so that we can fund the infrastructure for the nation. That mission, that overarching goal hasn't changed in 40 years. It's just that the way we do it is evolving. So you're right. Technology is going to play its role. But again, we don't really need to, you know, I'm going to show my age again here, Stephen. We don't need to take the Etch-A-Sketch that we all had growing up and shake it so that it's clean. We don't need to do that. We have a great foundation based on how to. The question is, what do we use and how do we make it work? So, Stephen, let me ask you, I mean, you've been in you've been in specialized transportation world for a long time. You work for the DOTs and and stuff. I mean, from your standpoint, I mean, 
what do you think is going to happen with this? How, how are we going to be able to make up enough money to basically pay that infrastructure and do this if we don't do a mile tax? Is there any other choice, any other option that you can think of? Well, um, good segue into, uh, yeah, the, the, this topic, and that is <clears throat> I was thinking about uh, our podcast interview, Tony, with Rick and Carmen, and this contentious issue, <clears throat> and it is contentious uh, for now, like a lot of contentious issues, I think, Tony, you can literally take everybody in this country and divide them up into four categories. The first one is the I don't care-ers. And we've all seen a lot of apathy out there on a lot of issues within our country. And so that segment is its own segment. Unfortunately, um, I don't mean to be too offensive, but those folks, like sometimes in politics, will be led by sh like sheep and, and go where go where the flow is. Then there's the fourers, those that for whatever reason are absolutely hell bent. Um, maybe it's for political purposes, green purposes, climate change purposes, whatever, that regardless of what the issues are or the data shows, I'm for this change. Then there's the againsters. Um, and quite admittedly, there probably uh, there is a segment or two within uh, my industry, my former industry, that likely going into this issue, as has been demonstrated, I'm just against it, just because. And then finally, and I think the gentleman I'm looking at here on this podcast, I put in the fourth category, the resolvers, those who simply roll up their sleeves, assess the reality of the situation gather the data, gather the input, and ultimately resolve the issue. And I think that's where Carmen and Rick and 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 uh, the folks at, at, at IFTA are at. Do I characterize that correctly, Carmen? You, you're here to resolve the issue. Yeah. You're not here to get political for or against. Yeah, no, no. Great point, Steve. And, and it's funny, I uh, just did a presentation not too long ago at ATA. And as you can imagine, um, a lot of industry is very reluctant and doesn't like any talk about the possibility that we have to move to a mileage, you know, pay per mile. There, there simply is no choice. And as I conveyed to them, I'm not an advocate for it one way or the other. I just see the reality of it. I see how much is being spent on studies. I see what the federal government is saying and, and where they're leading towards. They're leading towards this is going to happen. And we just want to know the best way to implement it. Um, and so you may be reluctant. You may as you said, those four categories, you may not be a believer, um, but it is going to happen. In my mind, there's no question it's going to happen. Again, I'm not an advocate for or against it. I just know it's going to happen. And so the right thing to do is to be proactive now. You know, the last thing we want to do is be reactive, wait until it's too late, and you're going to see this happen with jurisdictions. And so this is why I keep talking to jurisdictions. We need to come together now. We need to have this uniform approach where we do it now before it's too late, before you're scrambling, trying to figure out, you know, how am I going to do this? How are we going to implement it? Do I need a supplemental tax then? You want a voice in how are we going to do it now? And we want to maintain that uniform approach. So very well said. Uh, I think that is the four categories that you mentioned are very true, Stephen. Rick, Rick, before we move forward, let's let's uh, let's get some terminology down here, just for the context of the rest of the uh, discussion here. Um, I, I, I see phrases like vehicle miles 
traveled tax, the VMT tax. I see mileage-based fee. I see road user charge. I see mileage-based user fees, vehicle meal, vehicle miles traveled, VMT. Uh, clean all that up for us, Rick, the terminology. They're, they're actually the same thing, Stephen. Um, you know, you can call it a fee. You can call it a tax. You can call it whatever you want. I'm kind of thinking about the old Budweiser commercial from 30 or 40 years ago about the guy whose name was Ray or Jay or whatever the heck it was. And, and you know, at its heart, this is a tax. Whatever is going to happen is a tax. Why is it a tax and not a traditional fee? Well, if you, if you research the legal definition of a tax, a tax is for the benefit of society, whether they use it or not. Now you think about it. If you're, if you're looking at a traditional fuel tax, does everybody use the roads in the same fashion that the big trucks do? No, but everybody pays a fuel tax at the pump. A fee is different in that it benefits the person purchasing the fee for a specific use. It only benefits them. So in other words, a, a fishing license. If I buy a fishing license, it's not going to help Carmen. He can't really use it. If I put a registration plate on my car, it benefits me. It doesn't benefit Tony. It's the plate that's going on my car. It enables me to operate that, that particular motor vehicle. What we're talking about here is something that's being used to fund the highway infrastructure across the nation, which benefits everyone. You know, I, I say this in a lot of different forums, and, and Carmen and I have been kind of crisscrossing the country, speaking to various groups and whatnot. Um, if you don't believe that what we are tasked with here is a matter of national security, then you have not been paying attention. I can assure you Amen. that if we do nothing, we just same old, same old, do nothing, and the roads deteriorate, 325 million Americans are going to be affected and, quite frankly, be pretty annoyed. And this topic, Rick, that I said at the top of the show is not a sexy topic uh, now and doesn't show up in presidential debates. Oh, it will become one, won't it? It certainly will. Um, you know, we're in a time of the year, and, and my friend and colleague is now residing in a very sunny, warm clime as opposed to where I am still. And Tony, you can speak to this. We're approaching a time of the year where the roads get beat up pretty bad, yeah. not just by the trucks, but by the plows, by just, you know, the way asphalt and concrete reacts to, to the colder weather. I can assure you, come spring, you will have people screaming about the potholes and the deterioration of the roads and whatnot. Well, how do you think those get fixed? Mm -hmm. They get fixed because we impose taxes where the funding is a direct derivative of the payment of those taxes. So, you know, I understand, you know, what the industry has said, and they're, they're right. Their they're fears, and we're going to talk a bit about that. Their fears is anytime you hear a new tax, they think that means additional tax. And that's not really where we all want to go with this. So with that, I think we, we serve it up for you. 
Carmen, back to you. In terms of setting the table for this, this conversation, could you and Rick walk us through some of the more traditional technology options that are being custom discussed right now and just kind of lead us through a little 101 of that, whether it be an odometer, GPS, yeah. onboard units, our smartphones, walk us through that. Yeah. Um, first, I think you need to preface it by saying when these study groups are looking at it, they're being funded by the federal government. It's all going to go back to the federal government, right? Because they're going to mandate something. And when they do that, the preface is it, it not only going to happen for passenger vehicles, it's going to happen for commercial vehicles too. It's almost got to happen simultaneously. And so that's important because why? When we talk about technology and, and you know, how are we going to do this, you need to think about both passenger vehicles and commercial vehicles. Uh, real quick, I want to go back to the to, to the naming of it, whether it's called MBUF or a road usage charge or whatever. Rick said it very well. Uh, and just keep in mind, what is it? It is a replacement for fuel use tax first and foremost. So no matter what you call it, it's going to be called a tax. And and I was just part of a group that that is one of the things when they go back to the federal government, they are going to rename it something else. And when we're trying to determine exactly what it should be called, but no matter what, it is first and foremost uh, a tax over anything else. So, and I'm sorry, what, what else, Stephen? I'm sorry, I lost track a little bit. Walk us through, while, while we're in the definition mode, walk us through some of the more likely technology yeah. options that are being discussed. So, good question. So, it's funny. Every one of these study groups pretty much starts the same way, and they kind of rank what we could use, right? And so, again, it's important because when you think about this, it's going to happen for both passenger vehicles and commercial vehicles. And the hardest part will be for individuals, for passenger vehicles, right? Uh, because their concerns about tracking and privacy and, and that's going to happen no matter what, even though right now they are tracked, right? They have no privacy. I mean, OEM, the, the black boxes that are in those vehicles right now knows exactly where you were and where you went and the difference in odometer readings and the mileage. And so a lot of it is going to be education. But there has been a lot of different talk about what types of technology we can use. Um, there are three jurisdictions right now that actually have implemented a voluntary system for paying per mile instead of paying fuel use taxes. And one of the things they did is not to mandate a certain type of technology or method in which you're going to, you know, let them know how many miles you travel, but it's coming. And so when it rank, when you rank it, it starts with OEMs. That would be the ultimate. That would be the easiest, right? If we could just simply get the data from those little black boxes that are included in every passenger vehicle and commercial vehicle, that would solve the issue. We could obtain that information, convert that data very quickly to say, here's the miles you ran, here's the tax rate, very simple. Automatic bill goes out every month. Here's the problem with it. OEMs will not provide that data unless there is a mandate meaning unless the federal government says we have to. Why? Because if they voluntarily provided that information to jurisdictions in the federal government, there'd be a lot of individuals that would say, I'm never buying a car from this manufacturer again, right? You did that without my consent, you know? So we just had a discussion with, with a, a really good meeting in Denver with ProMiles and a lot of our other vendors, and we went through that same process. What would be the easiest way, most efficient way to obtain the information, what technology 
can we use? And so if we can do it, I think everybody agreed OEM would be the first step, right? But to do that, we need a change. We need a mandate by the federal government. So whether they will do that, whether Congress will pass something that mandates OEMs, provide us that information, may or may not happen. Carmen, you mentioned uh, the three states earlier, the three jurisdictions that are taking it voluntary so yeah. far. Is it too early to tell election returns so far <laughs> as to what the public is gravitating towards? Yeah, no, very good question. So in Oregon in particular, it's been very popular, but there's a reason it's been popular there. The way that Oregon does it is if you want to volunteer for this program, we will use your uh, average MPG that your vehicle gets and we will credit you what you would have paid in fuel use tax. In other words, these vehicles are still filling out, you know, still filling up at the pump, paying the taxes at the pump. Pump, you know, hasn't uh, obviously the taxes haven't come out of the pump, but they're giving you a credit, and then we'll calculate um, what the mileage-based tax would be in Oregon. So a lot of people are volunteering, volu volunteering right now for this program because they end up with a huge credit because it's based on a hypothetical. Here's the average MPG your vehicle gets. So even if you don't drive, even if you don't buy that much fuel, you're going to get this credit based on that statistic. And we're going to credit against the mileage-based tax. And if there's a credit, you actually get a refund check. And so uh, the way they've been doing it, it's, it's been very popular. Now, Oregon is having legislation that I know we're getting off track here a little bit, but Oregon is actually um, has legislation that is going through their their process now that if passed would mandate from 2000, I think they amended it to 2028, meaning any vehicle um, purchased that is a 228, 2028 model or forward would be mandated to pay on a mileage basis and not pay fuel use tax. So we'll see what, what direction that goes, but uh, Oregon's kind of taking the lead on that. And so the voluntary program is going very well and it may become a mandated program in 2028. Uh, again, just real quick, we we're talking about technology. So it starts with OEMs. If we could get that information, that would make it the easiest. Next in line, I think would be something similar to what we you know, think about as a LOJAC, simply a GPS system that you are required to install in your car and we'll capture the information that way. And then it goes down from there. Third way would be, you know, for those jurisdictions that have inspections, what you have your annual inspection, maybe you could go, when you go do that annual inspection, they would actually write down the odometers or, or you know, record the odometers. But there's issues with that, as you mentioned before, Steve, jurisdictions aren't going to wait uh, on a yearly basis to get the cash flow that they need, right? Once you take the taxes out of the pump, um, jurisdictions need that cash flow coming in at least on a monthly basis to maintain their infrastructure too. So, And we're going to dive back into those technology op options in just a, a couple of minutes. But Rick, to kind of finish out setting the table in the definitions mode, could you walk us through some of the uh, more traditional methods that are being discussed for for charging in the future for this mileage, whether it be gas pump, billing, automatic there's, there's, deposits? There's been a lot of discussion um, over uh, how to handle this. Um, obviously, there have been many, many discussions, media reports, social media postings, et cetera, about the type of infrastructure that would be needed to uh, have uh, electric vehicles 
uh, both commercial, big and small, and passenger vehicles. You know, I, I liken this to uh, anything else that's a new technology. You know, when cell phones first came out, they looked like an old-fashioned World War II walkie-talkie. They were huge. And now you can get all kinds of data that resides on a phone that pretty much fits in the palm of your hand. This is not going to be any different. So some of the technology that they're talking about is using the current infrastructure. I know I was on a panel with uh, at the uh, FTA Motor Fuel Annual Meeting with uh, a lady from Love's Truck Stops. And she said, you know, Love's and and, you know, all of their competitors, they're not going to sit on the sidelines watching um, electric vehicles continue to come onto the landscape without them having some way of servicing the industry and the public um, through electric charging. And the question always comes up, well, how long does it take to charge one of these things? We've all heard the stories about how long it takes to charge a truck, how long it takes to charge a car. But like anything else technological, um, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use it as a prop here. Um, IFTA Inc. just recently went to iPhone 14s. Pretty nifty, right? It's already obsolete. I guarantee you it's already obsolete. What's, what's in research and development is at least a generation or two ahead of that. So, you know, the conversation with Loves went something like this. We're already working on fast chargers, things that can come really close to what currently happens when you pull up to a traditional gasoline or diesel pump. Think about your own car. How long does it take you to fuel up from almost empty? 10 minutes? You spend about 10 minutes there? That's their goal, is to get close. If they can get close, then the rest of it becomes somewhat academic. And that's there. That's coming. It's, it's you know, what you currently see in the marketplace is not what's going to be there even three or five years from now. It just isn't. And so when you talk about the technology, it's evolving. And it's evolving. It's evolving quicker, really, than than many of us can respond to. Stephen, think what maybe what you were talking about is how will the tax be charged, right? Was that the point of your question? Well, that that yeah, that that would come too. But uh, yeah, Rick covered the. I think basically we're talking about at the pump, um, yeah. billing. Uh, but but go ahead and take it there, Carmen. Yeah, I just want to comment on that a little bit because that's what I thought you meant. So, uh, you know, a lot of these groups I go to, they, they are talking about how are we going to facilitate this? What's the process going to be? Because one of the things about fuel use tax is that the it is the ease of it, right? You pay at the pump and that money is automatically sent to the government at least, you know, in New York's cases every two weeks and, and or at least on a monthly basis. So. Uh, when we talk about going to a mileage-based tax, everything changes. You're, the, the jurisdictions are no longer going to have that ease of collecting at the pump. Not a lot of compliance with it. Not a lot of cost administration because the number of distributors where the tax really starts up the chain is six or seven. 
So it's much easier. And so this will be a major change. So they are talking about it. Here's the keys again, technology. I can tell you one thing, there is no jurisdiction or the federal government that is looking at requiring returns from individuals, right? That is not gonna happen. There's just too much cost administration with it, too burdensome on, on individuals. You're not gonna see that. You're not gonna see where an individual has to fill out a form, fill out a return, you're not gonna see that. What they want to use is, you know, they want to take the advantage of the, the technology that's out there. For example, if we can get the OEM data, I think what will happen is that data will go to each jurisdiction, also the federal government, and then you will just see probably monthly bills automatically sent to the individual and probably send them on, on some kind of auto pay where they give a credit card number and It'll just be charged automatically. They need to make it as easy as possible. There was talk of trying to attach it to withholding. That's not gonna happen. You won't see that. Talk of maybe attaching it to the personal income tax return. That won't work because jurisdictions and federal government can't wait a year to get the money. So the best process, everything I hear right now is making the data and the technology useful where we can capture the information and just automatically bill individuals. Um, and, you know, when we talk about it, I know so this is going to be the most important part. How do we educate individuals? Because we're talking about a tax. They don't realize what they pay at the pump. And the truth is the amount is going to be very small. You know, when we talk about how much each individual might have to pay a mileage-based tax, I, I know we went through this um, exercise in Denver, too, the average might be $15 a month, you know, or something like that. So it's not going to be a huge amount. There will be no return. The collection is going to happen automatically where the jurisdiction, federal government gets the information. We know how many miles you traveled. We know what state you went in. Here's the bill. We'll charge your credit card automatically. Probably that type of process. And you mentioned the American public, and I know you want to jump in, Rick, but Tony, you're about as Americana as it comes. <laughs> Texas, Colorado. Let's take a, a step back here. What's your feel right now, Tony, for the American public in general on this issue? Where we're at now, why why some have concerns, privacy, and and then kind of lead us through your crystal ball, Tony, as to how that education um, will play out that Carmen referred to with the American public. Today, when you look at uh, a lot of the EV vehicles that are out there, they're, they're able to run these roads. They're able to uh, create the pothole bigger by hitting it with water in it. I mean, they are causing issues on our roads that they're not having to be compensated for. So part of me feels like, do I want the government to know where I sit at, where I went to, where I turned? Well, number one, I'm not going to do nothing wrong that I think, you know, they, they need to see this, but... Uh, I also say that, you know, is it their right? Is it the government's right to to see where you're at every minute of the day, to track where you've been and and to just send you a bill? Part of me says no. I mean, that's big brother looking at us. But at the same time, I go back to Rick's comment at the beginning. I guarantee you, you come spring and all these people up here driving nice vehicles are going to be screaming and griping at their county and at their state going, hey, I know we had a bad winter, but I just ruined a rim on my car because it was a pothole. You know, you've got to help fix this. This thing's have to be taken care of. So if I heard right, if we're going to be $200 billion in debt there, and didn't I hear that the federal government has said they're going to give trillions to this infrastructure? 
Well, we're not talking hundreds of billions. Now we're talking trillions. So if we're already behind that much, if we don't make a change, then it's not going to be fair to granny that's driving her car 50 miles a month. She shouldn't have to pay the same thing as an 18-wheeler that's 80,000 gross weight that traveled 200,000 miles that year. And so if we want to do this fair and we want to do it right, we've, we've got to take the guesswork away. We've got to go back to who runs the roads, how many miles do you run, and build them accordingly. So I don't always believe in the government looking over your shoulders, but to be honest with you, there's going to be so many people out there that try to buck the system, to try to not pay their part in tax to get away. And it's people like us that have to do the taxes that we do file the things that is not fair on. And that's even today. This fuel tax's total numbers is based on a fleet's MBG. It's not really based on that truck's MBG. So in reality, we've got some things broken today in the system. We just need to make it more accurate and make it where it's fair. You know, if this guy's got a truck and he does 20,000 miles a month and this guy has a truck and does 1,000 miles a month, well, that guy doing that many more miles, he's tearing up that road. He's utilizing our infrastructure more. And if we don't go to something different, we'll be $2 trillion in debt for infrastructure, not $200 billion. And so we have to do something here. When will the American public reach those pain points that you referenced earlier in our conversation? And what will they, what will they be? It's, it's interesting, Stephen. I, 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 as you know, we've talked about this in the past. I'm a big baseball fan. And uh, if you watched any of the World Series, and this is going to speak to something that Carmen can articulate far better than I. Um, if you watched the World Series, you would have been curious over the almost constant commercials from the Chevrolet Motor Division. And the theme was yeah. everywhere. The song, the old Fleetwood Mac song, Everywhere, which the word everywhere starts with the letters EV. Every single commercial was about Chevrolet's fleet or fleet of electric vehicles, starting with something as small as the Equinox and all the way up to the, you know, the, the very big Silverado. It's coming and it's not coming 20 years from now. It's coming very soon to where all of the major manufacturers now it, it, it includes commercial motor vehicles. I mean, that's kind of our bailiwick these days at IFTA Inc., but that is very likely to change. All of the people who go and buy new cars in a very short period of time will be buying electric vehicles because that's all there's going to be. That's pain point number one. Consumers, will, will their options will be very limited. Yes. What, what are some other examples of pain points, the potholes that Tony referenced and yeah, such? It, it, it's, it's going to be, you know, if... Again, if we can't maintain the roads and it's difficult for truckers to get, and I'll, I'll just, I'll say it, somebody has to, to get baby formula into the marketplace, to get toilet paper into the marketplace. That is a major pain point. We all went through that a couple of years ago. I'm sure we all remember it. I'm a little past the diaper changing age and the formula feeding age, but, you know, we all experienced what it's like when something interferes with the ability because most of everything we use on a daily basis gets to you by truck somehow some way 
if we don't address this real soon and we continue to beat up our roads and have no way to fund the maintenance of them, that is going to happen over and over and over again. So that's a major pain point as to downstream, the consumer is going to be very unhappy when he can't get what he needs in the stores because it can't really be delivered because the roads are so beat up. If I could just add to the pain point, because mm-hmm. you bring up a good point, right? Yep. And I think this is an important point to remember. The general public hasn't seen the pain points yet because they've been supplemented. Jurisdictions have been supplemented by the federal government. They've been taking funds from the general fund and especially this infrastructure bill, right? There was trillions in dollars that was allocated to jurisdictions. So you haven't seen it from the general public because you see workers out there working on new roads and and replenishing them and and fixing them. But here's the thing, that infrastructure bill, the, the funds will run out in about two years, right? About two years, the amounts that were allocated from that infrastructure bill will be no longer. And so when you talk about a pain point in about two years, jurisdictions are going to be in the in the situation where, oh, I'm not getting this money anymore from the federal government. How do I close that gap? How do I continue to maintain these roads from the fuel use tax that's coming in? And as Rick said, too, more and more the progression of electric vehicles, even over the next two years, that's when you're going to see a pain point because the jurisdictions, if we don't do something soon, will have to supplement that. They're going to raise your personal income tax, raise your property tax, raise the fuel use tax to an unsustainable amount. They're going to have to do something when that, when those funds get cut off from the federal government. So that'll be a pain point. Good point. Um, we've been recording for, I think, about an hour 20 solid or so. For now, when we jump back in, uh, I want to turn to you, Carmen, Rick, and, and you, Tony. Uh, what's driving this from a commercial standpoint, uh, and then we'll get into uh, more of the trucking industry um, perspective, Rick, uh, and drill down a little bit there. Mm-hmm.